Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to start the lecture today with a small poem by Angelus Salasius. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit unless you aren't there. Now, who is the you they're talking about? Our ego. And we must leave that aside in order to see the many faces of love that are around us. The ego gets involved and suddenly we're expecting, we're looking, we're projecting, we are anticipating what other people are going to be like. We're not seeing their inner being. I wanted to start this talk with a few, a a couple of definitions of love. One is from the Bible. It's anonymous. Who knows who wrote it? At points it sounds a little like Ashley Brilliant, but I'll read it to you anyway. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always preserves. I think we can all agree with this. And one of the things that keeps us from being able to do this completely is we have also been programmed and taught that love must have drama. You must have jealousy. You must have struggle. We see this everywhere. Is this true? Is it true? I don't think it is. I think the drama in this kind of expectations of possessing the one we love simply keeps us from loving. Because in thinking we want to possess, then we are injecting our ego into the problem or into the process. Because love is not a problem. Our very being is love. Swami Vivekananda defined love in bhakti yoga as a triangle. And without the three angles, you could not have love. The first angle is that love knows no bargaining. It's not a question of, I love you, and I'll love you more, if you do this. If you change yourself to make what I want you to be. This is bargaining. This is not love. We, we all have done it, and we still, you know, it's a kind of, well, if I do something for them, surely they're going to do something for me. I mean, it's as, it's as simple as for friends. If I come to visit you when you're sick, then surely you're going to come take care of me. These are not part of love. This is the shopkeeping of life. The second angle in Swami Vivekananda's triangle of love is that love knows no fear. You're not afraid the other person is going to leave you. 
You're not afraid that if you do exactly what you want and who you are, that somehow they will like you less? In real love, there should be no fear at all. You can be exactly as you are. You don't have to change at all. And then the third angle of love is it knows no rival. No one can get between you and your beloved. There is no fear of someone coming and taking your beloved from you. There is no rival at all. When those three angles are met, this is when love becomes the highest form of love. And what we're really loving at that point, as the Upanishads say, is the self within someone else. There's a saying in our wedding blessings, you love the wife not for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the self within. It has nothing to do with her looks, her personality, or anything else. It's the self, the God within that you love. In the same form, it says, you love the husband not for the sake of the husband, but for the sake of the self within. When we meet people and feel that instant connection, what we are really feeling is that oneness. Now, we get it all mixed up with all kinds of other things. We really do. Um, We get it mixed up with a good time, um, someone to show off with, all kinds of things we get love mixed up with. But that was Swami Vivekananda's definition of love. Now, I'm going to read this one completely because this is love is defined by in Narada's Bhakti Sutras, which is Narada's way of divine love. And basically all love is divine. Sometimes it's misdirected, but the feeling in your heart that makes your heart expand is the divine love for everyone. So I'll read you this quote. The love of God described by Narada is a love in which there can be no jealousy, no struggle of egos, no desire for material advantage or exclusive possession, no dread of desertion, a love that is incapable of unhappiness. Even the temporary alienation from happiness, even the pain of temporary alienation from God, cannot be called unhappy. For the devotee who feels it knows, simply because he does feel it, that God exists and that the relationship between them is alive and real. I had to think about that one for a while. But we have to stop thinking of love as a relationship between two egos and concentrate instead on the capacity within each one of us to love Sometimes a day like this, you look outside and you think, this is the most perfect day I've ever seen. It's just a day to be in love. I mean, I walk out the door and I think, this is a great day to be in love. Now, that has no object to it. It has no focus to it. It's just that expansive feeling that your heart grows and you feel that joy that you feel when you meet someone. Or when you first encounter, I don't know, when you first see your child as a baby, your heart expands to a point you think it's going to burst. So if we cultivate that, 
which is our own individual capacity to love. It doesn't have to have a focus, just our own capacity to do it. It will never leave you. No one can take it away from you because it's yours. And it is your very nature. In Bhakti Yoga and Vedanta, we form a relationship with God because relationships make focusing our emotions a little easier. So you form a relationship with your idea of God. It can be that of just a feeling of calmness and serenity, total peace in your heart. This is kind of an unfocused relationship, which is what I was talking about, just your capacity to love, which is called the shanta aspect of love. Then we have the sakya aspect of God, which is God as a friend. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna and Krishna are friends. Krishna is the Lord, and Arjuna is the man who conquered sleep, and the great warrior. But they're friends. They meet on an equal basis. It's a friendship. In the play of Vrindavan, the cowherd boys of Vrindavan were Krishna's friends and playmates. There's no hesitation between friends. This is just a random quote, but I think it says it very well. It's a man named John Katz, and he says, I think if I've learned anything about friendship, it's to hang in, stay connected, fight for them, and let them fight for you. Don't walk away. Don't be distracted. Don't be too busy or too tired. Don't take them for granted. Friends are part of the glue that holds life together. And I know it is a tendency in our lives today to get involved with our life. And someone calls and you go, oh, I'll call you back. I'm really busy right now. But if we just take that little extra time, there's time for everything in this world. There is time. Believe me. The the five or ten minutes you spend with your friend talking to them on the phone is so much better than the five or ten minutes you spend worrying that I didn't take time for them. So these are easy changes that we can start to implement. Take the time to talk to people. When you walk down the street, also take the time to look people in the eye and say hi. Or just even nod. Just acknowledge them as another human being. It's not hard. And you'll feel better about yourself. Because that's another thing that as soon as you do things for others, your heart expands and you feel much larger, much happier, you yourself feel expanded, and expansion is life. The fourth kind of friendship, third kind, is dasya. And this is servant to master. This is very often how in ritualistic worship we are serving God. This is part of our basic motto of the Ramakrishna order realization for ourselves, and to serve God in man. So part of our motto, the purpose of our life here, is to see God in every person. Sometimes it's difficult, but to see that God within and serve them. Serve them. Do everything you can. If it's just, you know, saying hello, offering them a tiny bit of love for that day, that's enough. If it's someone who comes up to you and says, can you give me some money? I'm really hungry. 
and you say, I'll go buy you a sandwich. Okay. And then you see them in the line behind you with a big bottle of gin. You give them the sandwich anyway. It's not for us to judge what they're going to do with what we give them. I'm not saying go out and and help everyone, but do what you feel at the time, how much you can expand. Master to servant, I think, is a little more difficult for most of us in the United States because we have not had that position. We have service jobs, and you've noticed when you go to a restaurant when people really are taking a pleasure in taking care of you. And then you notice the people who are just there kind of, here's your plate. Um, It's an attitude that we can cultivate. Service should not be just going through the motions. It's really and truly looking at that person and doing the best you can for them with your heart. Then we come to the fourth kind of love, which is vatsalya, parent-child. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had that relationship. She took care of her son who was an incarnation of God. She was not awed by him. She was not in fear of him. She was not reticent to reprimand him if she needed to. The same with Jashoda and Krishna. Krishna was a real rascally boy. And he stole things from the people in Vrindavan. And his mother would tie him up to try and make him behave. And he would let her do it because she was his mother. So all of these things, they're just relationships. If you want to have the relationship of you're the child of God, this was the one Ramakrishna had with Makali. He felt he was her child and asked her for everything. In the same time, there was a woman who came, Gopalarma, who felt that Gopala was her child. And she had this little statue of Gopala, which she carried around all the time. But it became living to her, and she could actually see him running around the kitchen in her house. He would tease her and do all kinds of things. She had formed such a strong relationship that the love had given her this divine vision. The fifth and last type of love is Madura, which is wife, husband, beloved, romantic. It includes all the others. As most everyone knows, when you're first in love, you'll do anything for your beloved. You take care of them, you feed them, you do anything. There arises a little difference between the philosophy of love and the preponderance of lust that is put in front of our faces every day in our society. Swami Turiyananda said it years and years ago, there must be a psychology behind this lust, but what is it? It's the desire to attain oneness. That's all it is. Lust is also an aspect of divine love, but people take the wrong course. They begin with the gross, and hence their failure to carry it to the pure substance. Love and lust are two things which are very much allied. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, lust is blind, but love is pure and resplendent. It is lust if you have the idea of man, and love if you have the idea of God in your beloved. Another author said it another way. 
He said, sex is the consolation you have when you can't have love. That was Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So love is of the heart, and it's heart-to-heart meeting. The heart's whole purpose is love and devotion. But unfortunately, we have to engage our brain, too. The brain is discrimination between the good and the bad. So they have to be combined. They have to be combined to find God, and they also should be combined to find a good relationship in life. Yes, we can be highly attracted to the package. Highly attracted. That's the first part of attraction. You see someone and you feel this great attraction. You have to start thinking, though, is this the right person for me? You have to really apply some discrimination. Does this person feel the same way about me that I feel about them? Are we going to be good for each other? Are we going to help each other grow? Do I love him just the way he is? Or would I love him better if he shaved his beard and uh, lost 10 pounds and got another job? I mean, we have to think about all those things because when we start putting stipulations, it's not love. What we're doing is loving our idea of someone. And what is our idea? It's our own ideal of ourself. We want to change that person into ourself because underlying that is the whole philosophy of oneness. We are all Brahman. And that is what we are seeking, that God within, that manifestation of God without, and in trying to change people, that's all we're doing. And when, why do we get angry and frustrated with people? Because we see our own shortcomings in them. And we're impatient with ourselves because we are not the perfect being that we know we are. So we look at them and we see, mm, you do this. Okay, well, I, I know I do it too, but, and it really makes me angry at myself. So who do we have to love first? What's the first face we must love? Ourselves. You have to dive deep into yourself and find that resilient, permanent, immortal self within. And then you can go out and love absolutely everyone in the world fearlessly. And you can find the right partner and be happy the rest of your life, sort of. It will end. As one of our swamis said, all compound matters must decay. We are going to die. (laughs) It will happen. And we cannot pretend that this will be forever and ever and ever till the end of time. No. The only love that will be that immortal, eternal, is the love of God. And as they say, once you attain the love of God, then you have the love of everyone available. I found another quote that I like. This was, um, this was Agatha Christie. It's a curious thought, but it's only when you see people looking ridiculous that you realize how much you love them. I mean, how many of us, how many of us looked at people and they do something really dumb and you, and you just laugh with them because it's, that's one of the reasons you do love them. 
You see it in children. They do silly things, and we just adore them for it, right? Because we've all done it. This is Jim... How many know Jim Morrison? I'll take my quotes from anyway. (laughs) You say you love the... Oh, this is Bob Marley. Like him, too. You say you love rain, but you use an umbrella to walk under it. You say you love the sun, but you seek shelter when it's shining. You say you love wind, but when it comes, you close your windows. So that's why I'm scared when you say you love me. (laughs) And um, here's what I think is one of the things that affects almost everyone in the West, and this is Jim Morrison. That's what real love amounts to, letting a person be what he really is. Most people love you for who you pretend to be. To keep their love, you keep pretending, performing. You get to love your pretense. It's true. We're locked in an image, an act, and the sad thing is, People get so used to their image, they grow attached to their masks. They love their chains. They forget all about who they really are. And if you try to remind them, they hate you for it. They feel like you're trying to steal their most precious possession. Now, if we think about that one, I mean, how many of us have, in the process of growing up, tried on different personalities? I did, I know. I mean, we were living through a whole bunch of tumultuous times, and so we tried on different personalities. Um, I think we do it very naturally when we're very young. It's hard to know exactly who you are. It really is. It's difficult. And there are a few people who, as they grow up, they know exactly who they are. One of our nuns has a nephew who so helped me. When he was five years old, he knew he was going to make movies. And he is now. But he knew that from the time he was five, six. We watched his movies when he was eight. Um, Very few people have that surety. Most people are, are influenced by external pressures. And I don't know, you know you have fads in music, you have fads in activities... When I was growing up, you, people want, we all skied. Whether we liked it or not, we skied. I loved it, but <laughs> I had friends who didn't. Um, we all do things because of peer pressure. This is not holding firm to the truth of who we are. I read somewhere, too, um, a painter once said, paint whatever you want in every style that you want before you get well-known. Because as soon as your paintings become well-known, no one will let you paint anything else. You have to maintain that style. And I thought, ooh, so you don't want to be too well-known because (laughs) who wants to be stuck to one thing, even if you do it well? I had another painter friend who was stuck in a style and she would paint the paintings. And I'd say, what are you painting today? And she'd say, just making donuts. Um, But they sold. So she made the donuts. And we don't want to do that to ourselves. We want to maintain our, I say, individual integrity. It really isn't individual. 
Our integrity is knowing the God within, which is in everyone. But sometimes we feel very frightened of losing our individuality. Ramakrishna asked Swami Vivekananda once, if you were a fly and had the chance to jump into the ocean of immortal bliss, what would you do? He said, I'd sit on the edge and try to drink it. And he said, no, no, no. You jump right in because it is immortality. And it's immortality, it's joy, it's love. Now, with the advent of Valentine's Day, we're celebrating love, right? What, What kinds of love are we celebrating? A lot of romantic love. I went through the card store yesterday. A lot of romantic love, which is really nice to let anyone that you really love, let them know you love them. If they return, the fact that you love is the part that's important to you and will make you a bigger person. Let your mother and father know that you love them, if they're still alive. Even if they're not alive, acknowledge that you still did love them. You know, you love them even if they're not there in the present. Let your friends know how much they mean to you. They're all silly little things, but they're, they're not silly. They're very small things that we do, but they create oneness. We become part of everyone, and we become part of everything. Now, I know I would ask for some questions or some short comments on your ideas of what the faces of love look like. I asked at the breakfast table this morning, and people came up with puppies, kittens, babies. Everything newborn is designed to create the feeling of love in us so that we will protect it and take care of it and let it grow up. And I think we all do feel that way. We see puppies and you go, oh, isn't that cute? Oh, I just want to be with that puppy. You see a kitten, the same thing. As you walk down the street, you see the faces of love looking at back at you. Look around here. I see a whole room full of them from here. I see everywhere, yeah. So what is your idea of love? Yeah. Don't you suppose, like you were saying earlier, about when you first see something or something, a person, a living God like yourself, and isn't, isn't it like a lightning bolt or a shock of inspiration? And then that's real, true love, that you love the Spirit of God within them. Yes. But, but then maybe some time goes by, and your mind begins to project and form ideas, or you have your own desires because... We're not free from that. And yet, that there is that moment. There is that moment. And that's what, any time you feel that, yes, you are feeling that love. And as Swami Turiyananda said, sometimes it takes a wrong turn. And we take it to the gross physical level. And when I say gross, I mean just substantial, the substance, the physical being which is impermanent, will decay, will change. And it turns or incorporates lust in it. When we start seeing that person, instead of as their ethereal soul, we see them as the body. And that is when 
There are a few heroic examples in the ancient Hindu scriptures who have achieved God taking that way, but it is not usual and very, very difficult. And I think there's three in all the Hindu scriptures which are voluminous. So three out of 900 billion. (laughs) It's not the easy way. (laughs) Trying to train your mind and your being to see the, the inner God and to really look at that person. I mean, I was reading a, a, another thing this morning about Gabby Gifford and her husband and how they, this, when she was shot in the head, this was totally unexpected. But they feel that they still are one being. He does the talking now. She still maintains her, uh, her sense of hope, sense of courage, her wit, all of that. But her physical being has changed drastically. And they still love each other for the, the inner person that they fell in love with. People asked, why don't you leave her? And he said, I couldn't even think of it. This, to me, is a good example of human love taken to a divine step. Uh-huh. Well, uh, okay, what I would say is exactly what the Upanishad said. You love them and feel one with them, but it's not the physical being that you feel that oneness with. It is the divine within. And I think that would be the Buddhist idea of non-attachment also, because you're not attached to the physical being of the person. You're loving the divine within with the divine, which is within you. And when you two can get that, then you have achieved a unity. Okay? As you said, once you get to that stage when you realize that love simply is, then all you see is love. Um... Holy Mother put it on a, on a little more practical level in saying until you achieve have that vision, which is very difficult to live in all the time, if you want peace of mind, my child, don't look to the faults of others. See your own. No one is a stranger in this world. Now think about that. Wherever you go, you're seeing the face of God. No one is a stranger. You don't have to be afraid of anyone. You don't have to fear that they're going to take advantage of you. She personified this too. Oftentimes we, in not expanding our hearts, bring unfortunate incidences to us. Not always. I mean, there are, there are evil. there is evil in the world. But Holy Mother was walking across a field, got left by her companions. She was 16. Um, and it was a well-known field for where they had what they call dacoits, robbers. And it was dark, and she's walking by herself because her comp- she told her companions, I'll catch up. And this dacoit came towards her, and she said, the first words, Father, thank you for coming. I, this is your daughter, Sarada. I'm, my, I'm by myself. I'm so glad you have come. His wife came up behind him, both dacoits. They were going to rob her 
you know, beat her up. And she said, oh, mother, it's your daughter. Well, immediately, how could they do this? They went, so they took her home with them, fed her. Where are you going, daughter? Took her all the way to Calcutta and continued to visit her for the rest of their lives. But often our our fear of people, I was at uh, a presentation by is it Father Boyle, who does the men's, the boys' drugs thing. Yeah. Some of the boys came with him. One of the guys was a great big, tall, big black man with tats all over. And he said they were going to Chicago to do a presentation, and they walked through customs. And all of the women grabbed their purses and held it tighter when this boy walked by. Now, I mean, how would you feel yourselves if someone did that when you walked by, looked at you as if you were going to attack them? Our ego response would be, what are they afraid of? I'm not going to do anything. But it's so ingrained in us to have these sometimes negative responses. Now, I don't mean to be for anyone to be foolish. Just be rational if we can. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> Try and see people just as they are, not the trappings. This black kid was one of the nicest kids you'd ever hope to meet, and he was having his tats removed because he had been in a gang. And he had recognized that this was causing him problems, unnecessary problems. They were showing a person he was not. They put up the wrong picture. So if we can, like Jim Morrison said, don't put up the wrong picture of ourselves. Give people the true picture of ourselves, even if it's ridiculously nerdy. It's okay. You know, not everyone has to be cool. That's, they just don't. You can just be yourself. And you are perfect as yourself. Yeah. I got to put this out a little more practical. I've tried to change certain things about Anna for 45 years. Doesn't work. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Does not work, Don. You better stop. She's gonna she's gonna edit this lecture. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. When you're trying to change people. That's true. That, that's true, Don. Don, but one of the things we have to remember is when we try and change people, we're trying to change them into ourselves. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make them just like us because in our heart of hearts, we know we're perfect. Right? <laughs> and everyone else has to be just like me because then the world would be perfect. No. You can help each other grow. That's, that's different. That's not trying to change them into yourself. Trying to change, help each other grow spiritually. 
But it doesn't mean get a better job, make more money, um, lose 10 pounds, learn how to play handball. That's not the part. You help each other grow spiritually and emotionally become adults. Otherwise, well, I'm really bossy. I really am. I've always been bossy. I was an only child, and I was in charge. Okay? And I was really in charge. I had everything my own way. So I moved into a convent with eight other people. Really difficult. I'm still bossy. I think I've lessened it a little, but I won't ask my sisters to stand up and say whether I have. I I think I have learned to, okay, we'll do it your way. But it's very difficult to change ourselves, and we only change things we want to change. We've all come in with a package. They're called samskaras. You can call it DNA. You can call it genetics. You can call it upbringing. You can call it anything you want. But basically, it's samskaras from your past lives. And that's the reason we're here, is to work those out. And yes, we can change or recognize them and not dig them deeper. Once we start looking at ourselves and recognize what the parts of us that we would like to not have, we can make small inroads on that, but we don't make major changes. We can learn to appreciate other people for, for exactly who they are, with all of their samskaras too. But as I say, if we make an, a minor change in our life, we have done a great deal. This is why they say to love God. Loving God will make the most major change in your life of anything and your behavior. Loving God is the easiest way to change your whole being. Because when you love God, you have to love all of God's creation, all of Maya. And as soon as you love all of it, there is no separation. And your behavior, oh, that's, you know, that's transitory, that's governed by other things. But with the underlying love, there's no, as they say, no struggle, no egos, no prejudice, nothing. There is simply love. So the easiest way to find that peace and quiet and calm and happiness forever is to love God. And I think we'll end with a roomy quote. I had a good time finding quotes this time. Love is that that never sleeps, nor even rests, never stays for long with those that do. Love is a language that cannot be said or heard. We'll end with chant. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Om Shanti 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 Full of Brahman are the things we see Full of Brahman are the things we see not. From Brahman all, yet is it still the same. Peace, peace, peace be unto us all. 
You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.